Go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 15. That's where we're going to be this morning. This last week I went to Lowe's. I'm not sure if you've been to Lowe's recently. I'm more of a Home Depot guy from just where I live and whatnot. But the item I needed to get was at Lowe's. And I walked in and I realized in the midst of this errand that I was running that I was living a little bit of a metaphor. It appeared to me, if you don't know Lowe's or Home Depot, these are stores that sit on the site of about one city block. And it is just a massive warehouse, right? And the item that I was looking for, I had never looked for before. And really, it could have been in several different places from what I thought would be logical. And as I walked in to try and find said item, I had my helper with me, a four-year-old. And Eli and I trounced around the city, this city block, looking for um, the item. And in the midst of looking for the item, I was looking for someone to help me. It appeared on this particular, probably Tuesday, there were about 10 people working at Lowe's. Um, 10 people in a city block is about what it felt like. I literally could not find anyone to help me. I'm wandering around for a long period of time looking for help. This is a guy asking for directions. I mean, this doesn't happen a ton, and there's no one to help me at all. Um, I finally find someone, and I I walk upon... By the way, I'm not paid uh, any endorsements by Home Depot to give this negative assessment of Lowe's, by the way. Okay, I'll just let you know in advance. I stumble upon a person finally, and she's sort of sorting through go-backs, and she's mumbling, not quite curses, but polite curses under her breath. And I kind of walked up, like, you know, to let let her know that I was there. And she seemed a little bit tiny miffed that I, you know, was interrupting her, but I finally found a soul that worked here. So I wasn't going to let this opportunity pass. And so she tells me it is at the far other end of the store. Does she leave her go backs to walk me there? Absolutely not. Does she give me even a specific aisle number? Absolutely not. So I'm off again, me and my four-year-old helper, and we're off to go find this thing. We finally find the item. We get to the front. Anyone like self-checkout? I'm actually a huge fan of self-checkout because a lot of times it's open and you can just scan it quickly. I used to work at a grocery store. I was a bagger, always wanting to be a checker. And so to actually get to use the scanner still has a little bit of an excitement thing for me. So I show up and self-checkout's wide open. There's another employee. I saw the second employee that worked at Lowe's. They were manning the self-checkout area. And as I'm sitting here getting ready to go, Another person is there with a little plastic elbow, and and he says, I don't have the skew on this. Can you look it up? And she goes, sir, you'll have to go get it. She goes, I would just have to do the same thing. And I thought, I have an item, by the way, that's this big, okay? And and so I realized, I'm like, wow, um, it actually was a, a situation where I needed to go get. So I now had to go back and get my own skew to help myself check out and finally get out the door. Now, all of this to say, this is a living metaphor of of what I realize Lowe's must live by. I think their tagline in their staff room must be this right here. And is there anything more American than this statement? Ready? God helps those who help themselves, right? I thought this must be how they train people at Lowe's. God helps those who help themselves. Don't help people. That'll just enable them. You make them do it, and then they'll figure it out. Now, we think to ourselves, that's biblical, right? But let me tell you right now, no one said that in the Bible ever, okay? I'll tell you who's credited with that. We're not entirely sure, but this is all American. It's pure American. It's Thomas Jefferson that said this. And the gospel comes along, and what the gospel does is it actually puts a real blow to the ego, 
Okay, here's what the gospel says. The gospel says that God actually helps those who cannot help themselves. Religion, by the way, is helping yourself to God, right? That's what, that's what religion is. That's what Jesus came to stamp out. Because it's impossible. You can't help yourself to God. God helps those, not who help themselves, but God helps those who cannot help themselves. Now, I want to kind of direct our attention to say Jesus said something that is sort of this mashup, if you will, of these two phrases. Jesus said something to the effect of this. God helps those who help others as they help themselves. That's a little bit of a you know, tongue twister mind bend there, but we're going to unpack this a little bit. But God helps those who help others as they help themselves. Here's something I know about you, whether I've met you or not. You are concerned about you. You care for you. You think about you. You actually talk to you. You feed you. You bathe and clothe you. You care about you. And whether you are on the one extreme of being a prideaholic, or whether you're on the extreme far end over here of being a self-hater in some way, there's a common denominator, and it's this, self-focus. So whether you hate yourself, whether you love yourself, whether you're somewhere in the middle and you're like, I'm not really on either of those extremes, the truth is, it is a part of our human nature to think about our self. This is why Jesus commanded us to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's commanded because loving others won't come naturally. Caring and thinking about and nurturing yourself, it will. That will always happen. That's why Jesus said, love other people as you love yourself. Remember how Jesus summed up the whole revelation up to that point? He'd been asked this question, hey, teacher, there's a lot of stuff in here. What's the, what's the most important? Give me the cliff notes. What's the most important thing I should be doing? What does he say? Love the Lord your God, right? First and foremost, he gave him a two-for-one answer, right? What's the number one thing? It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second command is just like it. What is it? Love your neighbor as yourself. This sums up all of the law and all of the prophets. So you want to focus on two things the rest of your life. Love God and love other people. That's it. You start working on that, and you've got it down. We started this church called Neighborhood Bible Church coming up on 10 years ago now. This fall, it'll be, it'll be 10 years. The church was started with a firm belief that God wanted to serve and save people in this neighborhood. The people that were here in this building meeting as a church held firm to the belief that God still wanted to serve and save people in this neighborhood. So they had the foresight not to sell the property for a lucrative profit, but to keep it as a church. God moved our team in, and Neighborhood Bible Church was born of kind of those two families coming together. When you think about this neighborhood, what is it that we are concerned about in this vicinity? It's the people. It's the neighbors, not the hood, right? It's not the climate, it's not the zip code, it's not the different things that that make up the neighborhood. It's the souls who dwell here. That's what we're about here. So for the next two weeks, I am giving you permission to change our church name to Neighbor Pleasing Bible Church. 
Now, I haven't asked the elders' permission on this one yet, but I think this would be, I think this would cause quite a stir in our little church by just doing some graffiti on our own sign, crossing out hood and writing pleasing, neighbor-pleasing Bible church. One of your community questions this week is this. What expectations would you have coming to neighbor-pleasing Bible church, right? I mean, that would, that's an open-ended question there. But I want to give you permission when you talk to other people, and for the next two weeks, when they ask you where you go to church, you could say, I go to neighborhood, I go to neighbor-pleasing Bible church. My hunch is they'll say, really? Tell me more about that. That would be kind of ear-catching, I would imagine. Here's what I'm talking about with this. People-pleasing tends to be bad and negative. We kind of think of it in a negative light, right? Um, I'm not talking about people-pleasing in a negative light, but rather truly pleasing others instead of pleasing ourselves. Isn't that the essence of service? Pleasing other people in favor of pleasing yourself? That's the essence of service. What's the essence of the Christian life? It's to be a servant. The Bible in the, in the sign would be our qualifier. We are going to please people in all and in every way and to, the, and to the measure that the Bible gives us the permission to please them. So we can't please people any way that we choose. We please people according to what the Bible gives us freedom to please people with. Different way of thinking about it, isn't it? People-pleasing is seen as negative primarily, I think, because we think of the person as having a lack of character, a lack of backbone, a lack of truthfulness to be true to who they are, right? Because what are they doing? They're always bending to the will of other people. I really like this, but I'm a people-pleaser, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stuff that and just pretend that I, that I don't like it, or vice versa. But what if people-pleasing meant something more along the lines of taking your strength and willingly bending it to the will of another. This is what a Christian does, by the way. We willingly bend our will to the will of the Father. It's what Jesus did. It's how a Christian lives and walks. And if you're in line with God, the Father, and if you're about what he's about, you will find out very, very quickly, Jesus will tell you this. Get into my church. Get into fellowship. This is God's plan A for changing the world, friends, right here. Look around you. This is it. There's no plan B. So Jesus will very quickly tell a new Christian, get into fellowship. I've put a family around you. Get into the family. And then once you're in a family, he will tell you very, very quickly, go serve other people. Go put your needs on the shelf in favor of serving other people. That sounds like people-pleasing redeemed to me, right? It's not people-pleasing so they'll like you more. It's people-pleasing so that you can be a servant to them. I think the name change would communicate to our community what we're all about. We're here to please people in all the way that the Bible allows. All right, Romans chapter 15. You're like, where on earth is this guy getting this? It's from the Bible. All right, see if you see it with me, and then you can push back on me. I will allow that. Don't do it in the service. It'll just get chaotic, but I'll be at the welcome lunch. You can come find me. Romans chapter 15, verse 1 says this. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Pause for a moment. The obligation, the burden is on the strong. We'll look in a moment, clarifying that a little bit. But very clearly, not to please ourselves. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. 
For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Built into this passage is this idea that the Bible is there for our instruction. What was written for you in the past is written for you to learn from. Endure in learning. Endure in applying. Endure in benefiting from the scriptures. Lindsay, I love your testimony. Hey, it sounds really simple. I should really read the Bible more. Ethan, Love your testimony. Sounds really simple, but wow, when I get past kind of the the seven-minute perfunctory prayer, I'm left kind of speechless. Ethan and I were talking about this yesterday a little bit. He said, man, you know, it was amazing to get to, to start to explore. The whole theme of the camp was vast. It was neat to start exploring the depth of God, and you start praying and thinking about things that don't just come up at dinnertime prayer, bedtime prayer. Foxhole prayer, right? Pray more, read your Bible more. This sounds an awful lot like simple stuff, but it changes your life. It's there for our encouragement. Hey, keep enduring, he's saying, and keep being encouraged. All this instruction was written for you. You're not alone in this. Look at verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Think about the last time that you were welcomed really, really well. I mean, by the body language, by the signage, by just everything came together and you thought, wow, that's how you welcome someone in. Uh, Last night I was at a friend's house and I was going over there for a 4th of July event. And I walked right into their house and it didn't dawn on me until about two minutes into being there visiting and talking that I just walked in because I'm so comfortable and familiar with these people. And what that says to me is this. These are people who know how to really welcome well. And I've been there enough that I felt totally comfortable walking right into their home and it wasn't awkward in the slightest bit. Now, some of you are like, oh, caution, inviting the pastor over. I guess he's just going to come waltzing right in. I don't do that to everyone, right? I read the signals and I don't do that. But they welcomed so well that 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 felt completely natural and normal to to kind of waltz right in. There's not many people in my life that I just walk into their house. That means I've been welcomed well. Now flip this for a moment. Think about the last time you were welcomed really, really poorly. From the body language to the words that were used to the setting to the, the environment to all of that, you just felt rejected. There was something going on that you just thought, wow. I am not wanted here. Probably we, we have tales of both of those, right? And the, and the real world, we live somewhere in the middle of that, where, where there are times we're welcomed sort of well and other times not so much. The scripture here is saying, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I want to just, if you're taking notes, I want to just give you a couple of clarifications that the scriptures teach us here 
and we'll glean from that. First of all, who are we to welcome? It's, it's to welcome one another. In Romans chapters 12 to 16, it's all about Christian living. It's about how to come together as Christians and live together. There's very, very clear instructions on that. One of the things that we have as a spiritual family is we have some boundaries. God doesn't spell out every last detail of things. In fact, he leaves giant open fields, but there is a boundary fence to things, right? And he has said, this is the way you're, you're to interact with one another. There's a ton of one another's in the scripture. There are actually some forbidden one another's, right? Don't lust after one another. Don't give up meeting together with one another. So there are some forbidden one another's, but there are a whole bunch of other positive one another's on how we're to treat each other. Leave your finger in, in uh, Romans 15 and just look back at Romans 14 for a moment. To figure out who the strong and the weak are, this isn't feats of strength like, oh, you can bench press X amount. No. This is spiritually strong and spiritually weak. Look at verse 14.1. As for the one who is weak in faith. So when 15.1 says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, it's talking about spiritually. Those who are strong in the faith are to bear with the failings of those who are weak in the faith. He's carrying the same idea of those who are weak in the faith from Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Now, if you look around our world, tolerance and coexistence is kind of the highest um, ideal that man can come up with. Have you seen the coexist bumper sticker, right, with all the different religious symbols, right? And tolerance is a massive buzzword, right? Let's tolerate each other. I mean, this is, this is the pinnacle of man. Let's tolerate each other and let's coexist. Let me show you something. If this is the pinnacle of man, coexist and tolerate. You know what? You know what God comes along and not only says but models? He says, I'm going to push that way above that. I want you to have sympathy for one another and I want you to serve one another. Do you see how massively high above toleration that is, tolerating someone? How welcoming is it, Rico, to say, Rico... Put her there, buddy. Let me, let me shake your hand. Really shake my hand, please. It would be awkward if you didn't. Hey, I tolerate you, man. I'm going to coexist with you. Put her there. Good to see you. I'm going to coexist, buddy. Right? I mean, how deep is our friendship if we leave it at coexistence? What's your family like if you just tolerate each other? This is the pinnacle of man. Let's tolerate. Let's coexist. God says, man, Let's have sympathy for one another. Let's really care about one another. Let's get low and serve other people. That's the mark Jesus left. Whether you're a believer here today, a follower of Jesus or not, odds are you admire his lifestyle. There's something about the way Jesus lived his lifestyle that he's admired even by people who don't buy into his ideology about salvation and eternal life and God the Father. Because he was a servant. <clears throat> I want to teach you a Greek word um, today. It's the word proslambano. And it means this, to receive, to take hold of, to bring along, to lead aside, to gather together, to grant access to your heart. This picture kind of reminds me of the PAs with three sisters kind of welcoming a new person into the family. There's three sisters, and then little Caden comes along, and I know that little kid has been doted on by his sisters. 
been welcomed into the family. He's been granted access. It's not welcome like, I said hi once when the person first showed up. It's coming alongside. It's roping in. Let me give you a kind of a poor man's version of studying Greek. There's so many good Bible translations out there that if you grab about four or five good quality Bible translations and you just line them up side by side and you read a passage, if you see a lot of variance around a certain word, then what you'll see is that's a, that's a word I ought to go kind of look at. And you'll actually see, see how that has a lot of different meaning to it. So if that's the word in Greek and you come along and you're a translator for the Bible and you're trying to put that into, into English, right? Do you see how fights break out in the translation team? Because one guy's going, I think welcome really captures it. Another person's going, welcome? That seems really flimsy. It doesn't capture all that's there. It's really to receive. It's, it's, it's to accept. We should accept one another as Christ has accepted us. And so this is what translation teams do. I've never been on one, but that's what they must do, right? Because they've got this whole rich word. Here's a great way to study Greek. Instead of studying every single Greek word in the Bible, which would take you a lifetime, line up some good translations. You can do this free on the web all the time. And just find kind of those variant points and say, wow, these different translators use a lot of different words to translate this word, welcome one another. Let's, let's dive in there and start studying there and start seeing what, what, about, what nuances about that word are they trying to, to capture with that. This word's really important for the next two weeks. Next two weeks, we are just in this little mini-series of asking this question. How are we to interact with one another? What does the Bible say about a family, a Christian family, coming together and treating one another? To receive, to take hold of, to bring along, to lead aside, to gather together, to grant someone access to your heart. There's both an accepting kind of component here in this word, But there's also another component, and that is the reaching out nature of this. There's a reaching nature to this. I want to take hold of you. I want to give you access to my heart. I'm not going to sit here and wait for you to ask for it. I I want to come alongside you. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. The message translates Romans 15, 7, the same verse that we just read, this way. So reach out... And welcome one another to God's glory. Jesus did it. Now you go do it. Reach out and welcome one another to God's glory. You know that by nature some of you are receivers. If people come to our church, you're really good at receiving them, at welcoming them, at at, at roping them in. There's something about your body language and your wiring and your experiences that, that just you're good at that. Some of you are phenomenal reachers. Once they're here, you're you're kind of tongue-tied, but you're amazing at putting it out there, out in the community, and reaching out to people and saying, hey, you need to come check out our church. Hey, you need to come to this welcome lunch. Hey, I want you to come and meet uh, a friend of mine who's a Christian, and we'll just start chatting together. Here's what's powerful, Christians. You are all commanded, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, whether you're by nature a receiver or a reacher, we are all commanded to both reach out and receive. So if you are not by nature very good at receiving, here's my challenge to you. Here's my instruction to you from the scripture. Grow up in it. Get better at it. 
If you're by nature a great receiver, but you don't reach out very well, here's my instruction to you. Grow up in that. Get around people who are good at that and start shadowing them a little bit. Say, how did you just do that? Receive someone with another receiver next to you and have them coach you. So, you know, when you scowl and fold your arms, that's not the most welcoming body language. And you're like, really? We're going to grow up in this. I don't know if you feel the same way, but some commands are just super weird to me. It seems odd to me that the Christian church is commanded to welcome each other. I mean, isn't that kind of a duh? Like, of course we're supposed to welcome each other. But here's the point. If it's commanded, it means it will not come by nature. It won't just happen unless we make a choice to make it happen. Probably every church goes through this cycle where at times they're really good at welcoming one another as Christ welcomed them, and then at other times they kind of tail off and they're stagnant, and at other times they kind of dip down and aren't so welcoming. I talk to people at least every other week who say, this church is such a welcoming church. Man, I tried several other churches. No one even talked to me. And sometimes I went to a big church. Sometimes I went to a tiny church where there's no excuse. It was clear I was new. And you know what I say to that? I say, well, welcome. I'm so, so thrilled that you had that experience here. Man, I'm just, I'm thrilled. That, that thrills my heart. If, if the person's a Christian, I'll say this. Would you get right to work doing the same for other people now? Because other people need that. You're, you're new, so you still remember what it's like to walk in here brand new. Would you now be that for someone else? But I would say I talk to not as many people, but I talk to other people who have the guts to have told me, or I might be pursuing them, say, I haven't seen you around much anymore. I, I don't know what's going on. Where, where have you been? Sometimes people try to remain really polite, and they say, oh, I've just been busy. If I know them well enough, I'll say, no, you haven't. What's really going on? Talk to me. I'm your friend. I care about you. And they'll say, you know, Dave, I come to church. I walk through these doors, and it feels like this is one of the most lonely places of my week. And they go, I know it's not the most lonely place, because I do have people, so many people even casually say hi or whatnot, but I think I have a greater expectation that I should feel really welcomed at the family, and I just don't. And this isn't a very welcoming place. And I tell them, you know, that breaks my heart to hear that. We have a long way to grow in that. I could get really defensive and say, well, stats show that 80% of the people find this a really welcoming place. How helpful is that to that person? Zero. Right? And the truth is, we have a long way to grow in this, you guys. Um, it's really, really healthy to go to a different church once in a while, if you've gone to this church for a long while. You just see things with fresh eyes. I got to go to my, I don't get to go to other churches very often, but I got to go to my brother's church in Atlanta recently, and I was at a funeral in San Antonio. I got to go to a church there. And it was good to be new. It was good to remember what it's like to walk in from the parking lot and have no idea where to go and not know a soul, not walk in and be able to connect with someone, not talk about my week with anyone. It's good to be lonely now and again. The starting place for this command, friends, is the church. This one another, welcome one another. If you read the context from Romans 12 on, he is talking to Christians about Christians. The starting place for how we are to grow up in welcoming one another is right here in 
the church. If we aren't living this out with the motives that are prescribed in this passage, then I don't want to pray for more people to come to our church. It would actually just bring more people into a negative cesspool, and then they would say, well, I tried church, and it wasn't that good of a thing, and so they leave. Now, we are far from being a negative cesspool. That's not what I'm saying about our church. What I'm saying is it starts here. We grow up in it here, and then we let that permeate out to the community. How are we to welcome? By the way, I didn't get to see many fireworks last night, so we've got some in our, in our keynote this morning. How are we to welcome like Jesus? Welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. There's a really, really big sigh here going on where you just look at it and go, oh, it's really good that I don't have to muster this up. Dave isn't telling me. God isn't telling me. The Bible isn't telling me. Put on a bigger smile. I can only get it so big, right? And it feels really bad to put on a fake smile. Practice your handshake, you know, do a good back slap. It's not technique, right? I'm not asking you to muster up more emotion, muster up feeling like doing this. Here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to look at and remember and experience the welcome that you receive in Jesus Christ. As you look at and remember and receive and live in and walk in the welcome that Christ has given to you, just extend that to other people. That means your personality can remain introverted and rather non-verbose, right? That means that if you're big and gregarious and talk a ton, you can still be that person. I'm not asking you to to muster up things and just kind of pull yourself up by the bootstraps. God helps those who help themselves. I'm saying this. This is God's will. You praying this on your way to church next week, saying, God, help me to be a welcome person. I want to be on the welcoming committee, even if no one asked me to be on the welcoming committee. And help me to do it simply out of the overflow of how you've welcomed me. How does Christ welcome us? Well, to figure that out, um, you ought to be in the red words. We just finished 19 weeks in the red words of Jesus Christ. You ought to not take those 19 weeks and say, good, I've studied Jesus now, right? You ought to loop back and keep reading Jesus. You've got to keep just seeing how does Jesus interact with people? How does he welcome people? It's amazing to see the variety of the ways that Jesus welcomes people. He's sensitive to them. Every word he said, every act that he did, everything he said or didn't say was for other people. It was the strong being obligated to get low and help the weak. Jesus never welcomed the weak so that he could shut them down with his strong faith. He got low and he served the weak in faith so that they might have strong faith. Jesus welcomed truthfully, and when Jesus welcomes us truthfully, it actually makes us cringe a little bit. Most of your stories include some point where you realize, wow, when I felt exposed in my sin for who I was, it made me want to run. It made me want to shy away from this Jesus and just not even go there and not deal with it and just be content of how I was living. But... Jesus also welcomes gracefully, filled with truth, filled with grace. 
Because Jesus welcomes us gracefully, even though there's parts of us that want to run, we're so drawn to that, right? We're a thirsty person going, I've got to have that cup of cold water. And so we continue to come. It's Peter saying, Lord, you alone have the words of life. Who else are we going to turn to? You say some really hard stuff that we don't like, that doesn't jive with what we thought you were all about. You see this over and over and over again. When Jesus interacts with people, there's filled with truth and filled with grace, and there's this push and pull of people. So it is with us. Out of loyalty and mimicking our master, welcome other people. And here's the why. Here's the motive. We welcome others with a view to worship. Kel gave a little update last week on our budget, our finances, and he rightly reminded us there's many ways to worship. Singing to God and joining our hearts as the people of God is a way that people of God have been worshiping for a long time. Right here, politely sitting and listening, saying, I'm hungry to learn from the scripture. It's a way of worship. Private prayer and discipline. But so is befriending people. It's a way of worshiping God. And a new word today I'm going to teach you called be neighboring people. Be neighboring people is what people from neighbor-pleasing Bible church do. So you can teach people that word too. The result of Christ's acceptance of us is praise to God. That's what we've been doing, right? Why are we singing and praising? Why did we just sing, I devote my life to the one who set me free? That's, that's praise of God. When Christ welcomes and accepts us, it results in praise. What this passage is saying, Romans 15, 7 says this, that as you welcome one another the way Christ welcomed you, the result will be God will shine. God will be praised. God will be glorified. Isn't it powerful to think that this coming Wednesday in some cubicle in some part of the Silicon Valley, a little worship service can break out as you are welcoming someone in some tiny, insignificant way motivated by worship? Your flesh says, I don't really want to serve this person. I don't really want to be present and available to this person. I don't want to pursue this person. I don't really care about this person's healing. And the Spirit of God says, no, actually you do. You're a child of mine. And it's going to produce in us not a spirit of timidity, but of courage and, and self-discipline. And we're going to say, I'm going to walk into this. And as you're sitting here receiving and really listening to someone, you're doing it motivated out of worship. God gets the praise for that. Even in your own heart, you realize who's on the throne of your life. You say, God, you must be at work here because my flesh says, go get a sandwich and don't talk to this person. John chapter 13, verse 34 to 35. Write that down. John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. I want you to listen to the example part that Jesus gives. We're to welcome as Jesus welcomed to the glory of God. So listen to the example part and listen for the kind of praise worship part. Here, here it is. It says, let me give you a new commandment. Love one another. In the same way I loved you, you love one another. You see the example part? Jesus talking. This is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples. They will see the love you have for each other. Do you see the praise part? People are going to glorify God and recognize, up oh, Christian, simply by the way we treat one another. There ought to be that marked of a difference when you walk into this building. And by the way, I've had this conversation many, many times too. Non-Christians who walk in and say this, I can't explain it. But something feels so warm and so right when I walked in those doors. 
and I just put a name to it. I say that's the, that's the spirit of the living God that's active in our members. That's what you experience. Let me give you a name for it. Let me point it to Jesus Christ that's changed our lives. There's an interesting phrase that goes around that says this, she's so godly or he's so on fire for the kingdom. Let me tell you what that often means. What it often means is something along these lines. She has a vast knowledge of theology, or he is super bold in witnessing, or she is so faithful in prayer, or he is so holy, or she is such a generous giver, or he has such a huge ministry, and on and on and on we go. It's kind of curious that we've come to measure Christian maturity, he's so godly, she's so holy, by some of these things that the Bible doesn't really um, celebrate as much as we do. Do you know that your love for God is most clearly measured by your love for one another? Your love for God is most clearly measured by your love for other people. If you don't believe me, go read the short little letter of 1 John tonight. It teaches all about that. Is this even on anyone's radar as to how to measure your own personal godliness? Or is it theological knowledge, generous giving, long prayer times, big ministry, whatever, whatever? What if we really started to take the Bible and say, God, I, I, I do love you. Help grow this up in me. <clears throat> I want to quickly, in a time we have left, point out a few hurdles to obeying this. The biggest and most obvious one is sin, right? There's a basic fundamental problem that we have in, uh, in, in doing this, and it's sin. By nature, meaning that we were born this way, and by choice, meaning that we choose this way, we are sinners. And sin keeps us from one another. The reason we will always have room to grow in welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us is because you're sinful, it's because I'm sinful, right? And so these will be the barriers that will be between us. Romans 14, if you go on and read the rest of it, you'll see that there's all kinds of silly religious little lines that are drawn up. Christians and non-Christians have weird little lines like economic factors and race factors and what you wear and what you drive and what kind of job you have. And what your accent sounds like. And these are a way that we, way we, that we divide people. I'm better than you. I'm not as good as you. And so we keep people at bay. And this is why tolerance and coexistence is the highest thing we can possibly think of apart from God. Jesus comes and he heals how we view ourselves. And Jesus comes and he heals how we view other people. He saves us. People... Um, People of all religions of the world have something along the lines of the golden rule. What's the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? You look at all the world's religions. They almost all have this. Non-Christian people say, don't you dare tell me I don't have morals. I do have morals. Here's my moral compass. I just try to do unto others what they would do unto me. Now, I don't shove this in the face of people who cling to that as their moral compass. But here's the thought process I have. If my hope is in my moral compass, that I should treat other people the way that I want to be treated, it's a terrible, terrible hope. You know why? 
the compass keeps pointing out something. I can't keep it. I can't keep my moral compass. If that's my hope, I'm miserable. You know why? It keeps pointing out, oh, you did not treat that person the way you, you would never want that said to you. It, it, wait, wait a minute. You want to be driven around the way you're driving around? Other, no, no, no. You want other people to think that about? No. So that moral compass that you have constantly does something. It constantly condemns. The, the, the problem with all of us in the world is not knowing the rule. It's keeping the rule, right? I mean, what parent hasn't taught their kid the golden rule? Hey, treat other people the way you want them to treat them. We don't have any problems knowing it. We have problems keeping it. This is the Christian message. We need a savior, period. God helps those who can't help themselves. That's the Christian message. That's the gospel. So we have not just a moral compass, but we have a Savior that empowers us. Here are some relational um, pointers to kind, of, to kind of close this off. As a Christian... Um, because we get to walk with Christ, because we get to experience relationally what Christ is like, we get to mimic that. Um, oops, there's a cool slide. Um, if you're taking notes, here's the final three on, on the back. Uh, the first is relational sloppiness. One of the hurdles for you welcoming other people as, as Christ welcomes you is you're just sloppy. If, if something is on your plate named Joe and it's your lunch, that's good. If something uh, named Joe is your spouse, that's bad, right? Um, because relational sloppiness, um, it just makes a mess of acceptance. It makes a mess of growing deeper in relationship. It's basically that you already know what to do. It's just that you aren't doing it. It's super easy to take for granted those that you see all the time. When you see someone all the time, you begin to take for granted, and you actually say and do things sometimes to your immediate family you wouldn't dream of ever doing to a client, ever. Because even a whiff of how you treated your family to a client would shut it down like that. There are things you might do and say in your home you wouldn't dream of doing here at church. Sometimes we save our worst for the ones we're most familiar with. You know what? That's just sloppy and it's unacceptable. That's sin. Think about sports for a moment. I happen to be wearing um, not a bowling shirt, John Giordano. He didn't know Kenya had a bowling team. Um, it's World Cup season, people. And so for the first time, I thought I'd preach in the only soccer jersey I own. Think about not football as the world sees it, but football as Americans see it. Real football, okay, for a moment. In real football, if you are a team and you keep jumping off sides and missing the snap count, that's sloppy play. Would you agree? Every time that you do that, you move backwards. You're losing the game inch by inch by, by, by doing that. If you have the ball and you're a running back, a quarterback, a center, a wide receiver, and you are not careful with that ball and you keep fumbling, you are going to lose games. Fumble the ball and keep jumping off sides. It's nothing more than sloppiness. It's not paying attention to some very basic fundamentals. 
In the same way, relationships are just like that. It's not that we don't know not to jump off sides. It's that we're not paying attention. We need to be more careful. It's not that we don't remember that the ball is pretty valuable to have if you want to win games. It's to hold on to the ball. Keep it as precious. Guard it. And so spouses, guard what you have. Parents with your children, guard it. Friends and people in the church, guard what we have. Don't be sloppy with it. All right. Uh, Number two is relational clumsiness. Relational clumsiness is unexplained weakness at inopportune times, right? You had a grip on the plate a moment ago, and right when you got over the tile floor is when your, your grip slipped and the plate shatters to the ground, right? Hypothetical. This never happens in my home. Relational clumsiness is just like people having the dropsies. Are they accidents? Yes. But accidents really, really hurt, right? Not, being, not caring for individuals as the precious treasure that they are. You're trusted and let in only to then be a bull in a china shop with that person. When someone is pouring out their deep needs and their update of the week, you kind of pass off a quick cliche and, and don't really hear them. After an accident happens in our house, we often say this, hey, it's okay, I get it, accidents happen. And then we follow up with this, though. We say, just be more careful next time. You know what? That's really, really good relational advice, too. There are times you're just going to accidentally be an idiot. That's just the truth. And you know what? If you're a friend of that person, you could say, you know, that's okay. Just be more careful next time. And the person receiving that should really heed that and grow up in that. Let me give you one more. Relational ignorance. Relational ignorance is sometimes you just have no idea what is happening, right? Or what just happened. You're like, something important just happened in this conversation. I'm pretty sure I wasn't listening or I was trying to listen and it flew right over my head. What should I do now? Um, This really starts with you. I, I would say this. I get that some people are just more relationally intelligent than other people. But you can grow up in this. If you ignore your inner life, if you leave yourself at four-minute prayers and don't take a time to go do a solo and do an hour prayer and really start to explore the inner life and say, God, would you plumb the, the deeper parts of me? You, all of your relationships will remain kind of on this surfacey thing, including that which, that which you have with God. So relational ignorance can be grown. Not understanding differences, must let, must, much less appreciating them, will always keep you thinking in terms of me or them and win and lose instead of trying to, to, to really listen to understand. It's not our job to, to, to keep doing these you know, us-them battles. And sometimes we dig our heels into things without seeking to understand the other person. There's a certain cost to education, right? Um, many of you parents understand this. You didn't know diddly squat about, about babies, but then you had one. And you took the time to learn about it. And once they got croup or jaundice, you started learning terms you never thought you'd ever study about in your life. But you studied about it. Why? Because you cared about this child, right? So in our relationships, you can grow up in this. You can feel the pain point and get past it because of care. When you roll out the welcome mat, I'll just give you a heads up. It's going to get dirty. And if you start chewing people out for getting your welcome mat dirty, let's schedule a counseling appointment, right? Because that's step one. 
when you roll out the welcome mat. But they're getting it dirty. I know, that's all part of the deal. But this is kind of hard. Yeah, I know. But they're not responding the way I wish they would. Yeah, it's part of them being different than you, right? So this is how we grow up in the family. These next two weeks, I want you to get this around your head. I want you to be proactive with an emphasis on active and not on pro. Sometimes we wait until we're going to be an expert at something to ever step out and do it. God says this, go be active in your faith. Go be active in your welcoming. Even if you are generally relationally unintelligent, go be active in it. God will grow you up in these matters. Do you know that you're accountable for the gift and knowledge that you do have and not for the gifts and knowledge that you don't yet possess? Some of you learned something today about relationships that you need to put into practice in the next five minutes. Others of you are going to come back to a welcome lunch in about an hour and a half. You have an opportunity in the back lot to begin putting into practice welcoming other people as Christ has welcomed you. Let me close with this thought. Um, Next week, I want every person who is willing to follow my lead to wear a name tag. A really, really simple way to start with this is to look around at people and just ask this question, sometimes in your mind, sometimes out loud, hey, how can I help? And I'll tell you, to raise the temperature around this church, something really, really simple is just to offer your name to other people and to use the name of other people that you meet. Isn't it weird that we can actually avoid people? Because I might see Rico. Let's go back to Rico for a moment and go, what's that guy's name? I should really know it because we met last week. I'm going to not talk to him because I really should have known his name. What if a silly piece of paper and some ink could avoid that, right? Do you wear a name tag for yourself to make a fashion statement? No. This right here is an act of service. This is strictly for other people. It's a help to other people. That's a picture of what we're talking about these next two weeks. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning, for the ways we get to to worship and enjoy you. God, I pray that you would grow us up in this. All of us have vast room to grow in this, God, and and we pray that, that you would allow us to begin to see fruit in that. God, just now as we, as we continue to sing, as we worship in our giving, God, I pray that you be honored by the attitude of our heart. I pray that we would give sacrificially. I pray that we would live sacrificially in Jesus' name. Amen.